We are in Hosea. Uh, we went through chapter one last week. And this week we will be jumping into chapter two. Um, we're going to get through, there's really in chapter two of Hosea, three sections as I see it. And so we're going to kind of look at those sections. We have first, and what we're going to look at this morning is a call to repentance ultimately. Well, remember that uh, Hosea is the prophet to the northern tribe of Israel, uh, that his ministry spans a long period of time. He actually is probably a witness to the fall and the exile of Israel to Assyria. And all of this is in response to the idolatry that has been pervasive in Israel since its very beginning. And we looked at that as we introduced the book a couple of weeks ago. And we, we saw that uh, Jeroboam the first used idolatry as a mechanism to keep the people there. So they weren't going back to Jerusalem to worship. They worshiped these golden calves in Dan and Beersheba. And that's, that's what they were founded upon. And that's been an ongoing problem, whether it's uh, prophets of Baal and all of those things. Uh, that were there, or, but just idolatry in general. And so God calls Hosea to marry in a, a woman who will break the marriage covenant to illustrate that that is what Israel has done in the covenant that he has executed with them. And he spends most of the rest of this book highlighting their unfaithfulnesses, calling them to repentance, and pronouncing coming judgment. So Often, as we go through this book, there's going to be a lot of things that are very similar. Uh, and we'll take all of that into account. But this morning, as we dive into chapter 2, uh, let's begin in verse 1. But what, before we even read verse 1, what I want to remind you of is that because God is using the marriage relationship and the children of Hosea to illustrate the adulterous relationship, the unfaithfulness of the kingdom of Israel. We have to understand that as we read these things, not only is, is it a spiritual illustration, but it is something that is actually happening in the life of Hosea. So this morning when we talk about and we read that God is telling him, listen, tell, tell this to the people, that this is something that he is experiencing firsthand that God has commanded him to marry Gomer, this woman who would be unfaithful. And ultimately, that's his experience. And so while it's very poignant and it's very pointed, Hosea is going through all of it. He, in many respects, reflects for us the, the Lord in this relationship. And we have to understand that. So here we are, uh, verse 1. <clears throat> Hosea chapter 2, he says, Say unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Ami and Ruhama should sound somewhat familiar because if we remember in the first chapter, two of the names of Hosea's children are Lo-Ami, meaning not my people, and Lo-Ruhama, no mercy. So he's commanded here, he says, listen, say to your brethren, my people, 
you are my people, say to them, my people, and mercy, peace be unto you. That's what, that's what lo, ruhama means. And so he's commanded to say something, and it isn't an inconsistency. There are those, and I'll just throw this out there for your consideration, there are those that would think that this is something that is being said to Judah. And I disagree because it's not, that's out of character for Hosea. His entire ministry is to the nation of Israel. But I think what it does reflect for you and I is God's faithfulness. It reminds us of the enduring faithfulness of God. That though he's already told them, you're not going to be my people, and we looked at that and we see that gospel thread all throughout there, we also find that here he is remaining faithful. That as he is calling them to repentance, he's reminding them that you are my people, that I do deal with you in mercy. In the very names that he commands them to, to give. The words, the very specific words that he commands them to use. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 for a moment. Because this is so relevant, because Hosea is so uh, connected and gospel-centric, there's a lot of application that we as believers can glean from this. And in many respects, this is a reminder of the assurance of our salvation. We'll remember that Hebrews 11 is all about those who have endured in faith and ultimately God's faithfulness in response to that. That even in their failures, whether it's David or Abraham and their, their struggles, their ups and downs of faith, God never forsook them. He remained true to the word that he had promised Abraham to give him this land, to multiply him, to even have a spiritual legacy in you and I. And we looked at that last week, that here are these people that are not called by people, not being a reference in many respects and understood as such in the New Testament as a reference to those outside of Israel, being brought and grafted in to that stock. Here in Hebrews chapter 13, let's read verses 5 and 6. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. There's two things to understand here. Number one, and first and foremost, what, what we reference here, what we understand from what God is saying to the nation of Israel, is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That he will always remain true and faithful to his word. And for you and I as believers, looking back on the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have that with great assurance, unwavering confidence, that upon the word of God who has established everything by simply speaking it into existence, also said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That as many as receive him, to them gave, gave he the power to become the sons of God, John 1.12. That no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand. The assurance and the surety of that salvation, that enduring promise that we receive from the Lord. But in addition to that, and in reference to the idolatry of the people, we have this, let your conversation be without covetousness, which, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, is idolatry. Be content with such things as you have. There's this reminder here for you and I in the New Testament that God is, in fact, sovereign that he has provided everything that is necessary for us. Now, 
don't misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with pursuit and ambition. Nothing wrong with that. But when that begins to replace and that becomes the desire which we pursue, we've gotten things out of whack. As we talked about, as we introduced this book and we talked about idolatry, we sort of highlighted some of those things. Uh, but here it is. Covetousness. He, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Paul would write, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so for you and I, as we look at this and we perceive it, and it'll become even more clear as we progress this morning, because there is a pursuit on the behalf of Israel for those things, those things that would replace God, those things that they would pursue, and those things being outside of and contrary to God and to his plans, purpose, and will. So we have this call to repentance for the nation of Israel. And in many respects, in that call to repentance, as he initiates that through the prophet Hosea, we have this reminder as believers of the faithfulness of God. In Romans chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment, Romans chapter 8, to give us the idea and the concept of the certainty of our salvation, of the promise that God has given you and I, we read this. I'm going to begin in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And just consider that here is Hosea, this prophet, who is there going through this marriage tumult, this upset, the, having to deal with those things in regard to his children and all of that, the, the public shame in, 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 amongst the community, all of that stuff that is happening in his life. And we have this list here. In Romans chapter 8, what if God is for us, who can be against us? That nothing will stand, that nothing will overcome his plan, purpose, and will for you and I. And then in the midst of that, here in this same chapter, we find that God is in fact purposing to redeem everything for our best. Whether it's sinful or the consequence and result of sin, whether it's uh, simply the blessing that he has poured upon it, all of that designed sovereignly and providentially provided for to bring about in us conformity to the image of his son. Now jump with me to verses 38 in Romans chapter 8. For I'm persuaded, I am ultimately convinced, unwavering in my confidence, that's what the word persuaded means, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have this assurance that nothing in this world, nothing outside of this world, can separate us from the love of God. That He is faithful. That He does love us. That He does hold us as the apple of His eye. We as believers look back on the finished work of Christ and the assurance that that brings you and I. 100% confident. And we find this, as, as we find this call to repentance, we find that assurance to ourselves. That even as we may harbor in, in our hearts and minds some corners or some recesses in our hearts of idolatry, something that we would displace or decrease who God is, 
whatever it may be, as significant or insignificant as we may perceive it, God didn't change. He didn't remove himself from us. Even in the midst of saying, this is the consequence, this is what you will reap as a result, he reminds us of his faithfulness. And we have that assurance that he is in fact good, that he is in fact moving all of those things to conform us, to remove that from us so that we might be like Christ. And as we jump into the next verse in verse two, he says, plead. In other words, to contend or strive, right? We're, we're going to do our best to convince your mother. Now, when we read the word mother here, when we talk, I mean, that's a, a reference to the entire kingdom. Here's Israel at large, and it's represented, but you, can you consider, right, that this is really happening? Here's Hosea, in many respects, saying to his children, say to your brethren, plead with your mother. Beg with me, with your mother, that she would put away her adulteries. This is an illustration of the spiritual separation that has happened within Israel. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, because this is not an uncommon uh, decree, as it were. God uses this as an illustration, the concept of divorce, this spiritual separation. And he does so with Judah as well, because Isaiah is a prophet and Jeremiah are prophets to Judah. But we find the same illustration. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Isaiah 50 verse 1, whom I have put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. The idea that God instituted a covenant with the nation of Israel there at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, he said, listen, if you'll do what I command you, you'll be my people and I will be your God. Now, God is ultimately faithful and has not removed himself from the nation of Israel, but they have stepped away through their idolatry through their adulterous spiritual separation. And as a result of that adultery, God has given them ultimately over to the desires of their heart. We're going to talk about that as we progress this morning. In Jeremiah, we find the same, uh, same principle at play. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Thou hast seen that which backsliding Israel has done. Okay, so now here, this is Jeremiah, and he's preaching to Ju the, the, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's using Israel as an illustration. You remember that here in Hosea, at the conclusion of Hosea, they go into Assyrian. Uh, captivity, but there's a couple hundred years until Judah is exiled in Babylon. They fall into the same thing, and he's condemning them for their, their failure. He says, you saw Israel. You saw what happened. You knew what they were doing. They're backsliding. They're separating themselves from me. That, that coming out, that, that as Paul would write, come out, be separate. What part does light have with darkness? They're returned back to that. 
That's ultimately what backsliding is, right? Here's what we're saved from, yet in the, in the midst of our weakness and our sinfulness, our frailty as human beings, we retreat back to that which we know, to our natural estate, rather than choosing to trust the Lord, rather than choosing to walk in faith. Israel does the same thing. Judah falls prey to the same thing, yet God is still faithful. She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Verse 7. And I said, unto, and I said after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. God pleads with the nation of Israel. He sends prophet after prophet, pleading with them to turn back to him. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. All right, so here's the nation of Israel. Remember that they split. Here's the 10 tribes over here in Israel, the, the, the two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin over here. They go into exile. Judah sees it. They are witnessing all of this. Verse 8, and I, and I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. In other words, you knew better. You saw the consequence that I was faithful to the word. We talked about this last week, faithful to the word that I'd said, that when you reject me, you'll be kicked out of the land. But ultimately, even God's faithfulness there, in that when you are kicked out of the land, that's a means of correction. And when your heart turns back to me, immediately you're restored back to the land. We saw that at the conclusion of the book of Daniels. We studied through that. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in the book of Ezra. We see all of those restorations back and ultimately the kingdom being reunited as they come out of Babylonian captivity. But here it is. We, in many respects, stand not as Israel, but as Judah. We have the witness of the word of God. We have the witness that this is it. God is going to deal with us, and we should expect him to deal with us as his children, just like he did with his people, Israel. We know better. Now, we may fail. We may choose to fall and slip into idolatry. We may choose to harbor those things that would, and to retreat back to our natural estate. That the, To sin is, is natural. That's, that's what we're saved from. But it doesn't have to be that way. God has given us this illustration. He's given us some insight into his faithfulness. We look back at all the faithfulness of God throughout all that written for our example so that we might understand and know. We might have a firmer foundation upon which to stand and to found our own faith. All of this is illustrative of the hope that we have as believers. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, does anybody know what we read about in Acts chapter 7? We read about a particular person. Nobody knows. Acts chapter 7 is where we read about the stoning, the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. After Christ has established his church, he's the first person killed for his faith. And in Acts chapter 7, he gives 
one of the clearest defenses and histories of the gospel. And if you want to understand the whole context of the gospel, Stephen does a great job doing that. And I want to look at just a few verses here, verses 52 to 54. As Stephen is here preaching to the religious leaders of his day, right? These are Jews. They've witnessed. This is, this is from the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, all combined, having gone through exile and being restored, seeing the hand of God in bringing them back as they turned their heart to him and now turning their heart yet again, rejecting even the Messiah that was clearly prophesied and clearly signified by his resurrection. And they choose to ignore, they choose to reject it. And here is Stephen, one of these faithful men filled with the spirit we read about. He's one of those listed as the deacons. That was, that was the qualification. You got to be filled with the spirit. Here it is. And we read this as he's addressing these men. I'm, I'm going to begin in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did? So do you. Which of the prophets have your fathers persecuted, have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been the betrayers and murderers? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, a couple of things. First of all, he's calling to remembrance the persecution of Israel and Judah of the prophets, those who would confront them with their sin. In my mind, Jeremiah being one of the clearest examples who spent time in prison uh, in, in a pit, as it were, because of his witness against the nation of Judah, kingdom of Judah. It's the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah. Eventually, I'll probably get it right. Maybe. Just know. But all throughout this, they persecuted the prophets. Jesus himself spoke a parable saying, listen, I've sent unto you all these representatives. Here's my vineyard. I'm coming to collect what is mine. And I send unto you my representatives, illustrating the prophets. And you killed them. And ultimately, he says, I'm going to send my son. They will reverence, they'll respect, they'll honor my son. And what do we find? They put him to death. The same thing is being discussed here. Stephen is talking about the same thing. And I want you to notice that here it is. There, it says they were cut to their heart. There is some response on their part that is rooted in that confrontation with their sinfulness. They understand the illustration that is being made. We're compared to Israel and Judah who fell to idolatry, who fell to adultery, spiritual separation by choice. But we're Pharisees. We're the priests. We're those who serve God. And he accuses them saying, you received the law of God by the disposition of angels, right? You received it from the hand of God, but you chose not to keep it. Stinging condemnation to these people. They understood it. They were cut to their heart. And as we read in John chapter 3, when he's there with Nicodemus, and he's talking about condemnation, this is what's happening. They're confronted with light, and they don't want their evil deeds exposed. You and I have the same call to repentance. 
As we've looked at idolatry, as we, we've, we've seen it, we understand that it's anything that replaces God or would make him less. We're confronted with potentially what may be harbored within us. And we either respond to it by bringing it to the light, by confessing and letting God cleanse us from all unrighteousness, by heeding the call of repentance or rejecting it. Ultimately, I'm in of a, a, a growing certainty that this is exactly what the church needs. That the church needs those, maybe not another prophet, but, a, but faithful believers who, by the words that they speak, their adherence to the word of God and their devotion to follow him would shine the light into the lives of others other believers, not just the lost, but other believers. That in that relationship, there would be some level of conviction as we shine the light and as we receive the light shine in our lives. The areas that I struggle in may not be the same areas that you struggle in, and therefore the body needs the body. That iron that sharpens iron, that removes some material so that we might leave something far sharper behind. A call to repentance. Now, in Hosea, we get, we're going to cover more of this next week, but we get a summary, maybe, a summary of the consequence. Let's read verses 3 and 4, and I'll keep hitting this button and see if something changes for you. Probably not. He says, plead with her that she'll forsake her adulteries, that she'll leave idolatry, lest I strip her naked and set her in the day that she was, uh, as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, slay and slay her with thirst. And it will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. They be the children resulting from these adulteries, from, uh, from this idolatry. That's going to be an illustration later. Remember that I said we got lucky. <laughs> it's, you'll see. It'll make sense later. Okay. Here is Israel. This is a summary of the consequence. Now, he's going to spend a significant part of this chapter talking about more specific consequence. And I think it's worth us studying that and taking the time to look at it. But a summary is this. Israel will be left empty. Remember that the promise of God is that if you forsake me, if you reject me, then you'll be removed from the land. Okay, so Israel is going to be left empty. Ultimately, we find that the nation of Israel is left. They're pulled out. The Assyrians take them. Their sin is exposed. Everybody knows, and it becomes something where uh, even Israel is criticized as a kingdom because here we are being exposed. They didn't honor their God, and so they were removed. He removed his favor from them. You remember that uh, when the nation of Israel came in to the promised land when, and, and Balak saw them, and he was fearful, and so he went and found Balaam, and he said, listen, I'm going to pay you to curse God's people. And Balaam, you know, he really wanted it. He wanted the money that they were offering. He, he wanted the reward that came, the honor and the prestige that came with being the guy who cursed them, and they were going to reward him handsomely. 
And ultimately, he seeks the Lord, and God tells him, no, you can't do that. Those are my people. He does it anyway. I mean, ultimately, that's where he's at. He does what he wants anyway. It's the whole story where the donkey turns out and then ultimately speaks and says, listen, the angel of the Lord is standing over there waiting to kill you, and I'm trying to save your life. And three times he gets taken up to the top, and three times he blesses the nation of Israel and doesn't curse them because that's what God told him he had to do. But he still wanted the payday. So what did he do? He says, listen, if you want to remove the favor of God from his people, this is what you do. You, you send down your, your young ladies and you let them mingle in the camp. You draw them away spiritually. It's exactly what we saw happen in Solomon's life with his thousands of wives. And he goes after other gods as a result. That's exactly what Balaam told them to do. He says there will be a just consequence as a result of their sinfulness. Their sin is exposed. There's this understanding that when God removes his favor from Israel, that's the time to attack. That's the time that we have advantage. And this is a common theme. In Isaiah 47, let's turn there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 47. Again, this is written to Judah, but it's still applicable here because the same theme is at work. Isaiah 47, verse 3. Part of what God tells his people as a result of their sinfulness, as a result of their unfaithfulness, is their exposure. Thy nakedness, in other words, your sinfulness shall be exposed, shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. Right? He's not going to meet them. As, he's going to meet them as their God. And in Jeremiah chapter 13, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 22 through 27. And if thou say in thine heart, Wherefore came these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Right? God is here referencing the, that our natural inclination to sin. We cannot change ourselves, but ultimately he can and promises to do such. You and I as believers, we, we look at it in the same chapter in Romans chapter 8, where he promises that all things work together for our good. That the predetermined plan for you and I as believers is to be molded to the image of Christ. I can't change my skin color. I can't change my heart. I can't change my predilection to sinfulness. But he can remove it from me and give me a new heart. He himself can shine the light in, into me and into you and into anyone and change us. He continues on here. <clears throat> Therefore, verse 24, will I scatter them as a stubble that passes by the wind of the wilderness? This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. In other words, you're going to reap what you sow. Therefore, will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy names, 
the lewdness of thy whoredom and thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? Same concept in Ezekiel chapter 16. God is saying, your sin will be made known. In the book of Leviticus, your sin will be exposed. Your sin will find you out. Here is God shining the light into our hearts. This is the summary of the consequence, right? Israel is removed from the land. The nation is barren and their sin is exposed. Now, for you and I who harbor and we hold on to and, and we have those things within us that we covet to keep secret and hidden and indulge, we have to understand that God in his goodness towards us, in his faithfulness to his word, is going to expose those things. Israel will no longer be a land of milk and honey. You remember that in Genesis, when God was doling out the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, one of the consequences is that the land isn't going to bring forth fruit easily any longer. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be those things that are unpleasant. In the same way, the nation of Israel, this portion, the kingdom of Israel, is no longer going to be fertile. It's no longer going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of an abundance. That's a later restoration that is largely yet to happen. All of this is an illustration of the spiritual. The consequences that God gives are an illustration of the spiritual state that they find themselves in. Turn with me to Amos, the book of Amos. He's one of those other minor prophets. He was also a prophet to the nation of, uh, excuse me, to the kingdom of Israel. Amos chapter 8. And I want to read verses 11 through 13. Now there's, there's more to this prophecy, but this is applicable to what we're talking about this morning. He begins, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, nor of hearing the words of the Lord. Excuse me, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall their, the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. As we have God promising that ultimately, as he says here in Hosea, I will slay her with thirst. And here in the book of Amos, to the same people, he says there will be a famine in the land, a famine not of food and water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Ultimately, just as we read in Hosea, right, this is it. This is the last straw. This is the last warning. No longer am I going to speak to you through my prophets. I'm going to remove that from you because now consequences come. We find that at the end of Hosea's ministry, that's exactly what happens. The Syrians come in, they take them into captivity. He removes that from them. And though they may seek it, though they may wander around looking for it, it has been removed from them. There are no more prophets in Israel. They didn't heed them. 
their heart is far from him. And ultimately, even though there may be a desire to go and find it, God has removed the ability from them to hear it. His consequence is coming. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that God has promised that when your heart turns back to me in whatever land you find yourself in, and I will restore you and bring you back into the land that I promised you. But what it does mean for you and I, by way of application, is that here is a nation of Israel, and they've syncretized their idolatry with the word of God. They've taken whatever is out here, whatever is convenient, they've made whatever idolatry they had, and they brought it in to somehow be mixed up, jumbled into that soup of religious worship. And they've had entire generations now raised with that soup of religion. That the worship of the true and living God is just the same as the worship of any other God, and in fact, may be subject to this idolatry. This is the state of the nation of Israel. This is where they're at. And he tells them, Listen, I'm going to remove from you the word of God. I'm going to remove from you my prophets, those who would speak to you. In addition to that, he says, I'm not going to have any mercy upon your children, that they are the children of whoredoms. These are the children that have been raised in this generation of, uh, of syncretization, where we take the word of God and we mix it with these idols and these pagan, pagan gods, so that ultimately they don't even know how to worship God. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, And she conceived again and bare a son, and said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah, for I will have no more mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. That's the promise of God. That's what's about to happen. What should have been happening is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That when you rise up, when you lay down, that you are training your children in the things of God. That whenever they ask you, why do we do these things? Now you have opportunity to speak about the faithfulness of God. That this is what God has commanded. We walk in faith and in trust. He delivered us from the nation of Egypt. He delivered us as a people. He gave us the promised land. He was faithful in all the things that he said. We can trust him for the things that he has promised us, for salvation, for deliverance, ultimately. Not deliverance politically as a nation as they were looking for in Jesus' day, but deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. So here's the question for us as we look at this and how does this apply? What do I teach my children? Not only in word and in and in practice, when we formally sit down and, and teach, that's probably not where the problem lies, but the problem probably lies in what do I teach my children when it isn't formal? Because they're going to see, and you and I, parents, they're going to see the syncretization, those things that we've tried to mix in, whatever things we're harboring. Have I blended the word of God with idols in my heart? Does that come out in the way that I live? Am I willing to own that hypocrisy and deal with it or not? Are we raising children who have a predilection and an understanding that adultery, the spiritual separation from God, is correct? Or are we standing wholly and completely on the Word of God? He condemns the nation of Israel because they're generation after generation that has been raised subject to idolatry. Yet he had commanded them to raise them 
put it on your doorpost. When you come and go, you'll see the word of God. You'll be reminded of all that I've commanded you. Talk about it daily, day in and day out. There we go. He jumps into verse five in Hosea chapter two. He says, for their mother has played the harlot and she has conceived them, uh, has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and mine drink. We have a heart that is exposed, a foundational understanding of God being the create, creator and sovereign is ignored in the pursuit of anything and everything else. Does that make sense? So here it is, right? She's played the heart. She's gone after these other gods. This God provides that. This God provides that. This is where I'm coming from. That's what she said. This is where I receive those benefits, those blessings, those things that I, this is where I receive them. I said a little while ago, we got lucky. It's the same heart. Here it is. I'm standing up here talking about not doing this very thing, yet I did it. Wasn't my intent, but I'm just saying that is our natural estate. God was faithful in allowing this clicker to work. It wasn't a lucky thing. He is, in fact, sovereign. And I realize that it's a trite illustration, but nonetheless, that's where our heart is. I just need to do better. I just need to work harder, whatever it may be. That's still an idol. You are not your own God. God didn't, you were not the mechanism of salvation. You were not the mechanism of sanctification. God is doing those things in you and through you. So the foundational understanding of God being the creator, him being sovereign, him being providential is put aside. In Romans chapter one, we usually apply this to those who are unbelieving, uh, but I think it's applicable here as well. And, and even for you and I as believers, sometimes it is something that is true within us. It says in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. And to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here, this is exactly what's happening. This is what, what the unfaithful Israel is doing. All of these other things are being praised and worshipped as the provider, as the creator, as the deliverer, as whatever fill in the blank we might have. We've left behind the truth of who God is, and we've chosen to worship a lie. We've chosen to give credit to some untruth. Now, for you and I as believers, this is rooted in a misunderstanding or a weak understanding of God's word. Because that's where he's revealed all this to us. This is where he's established all the principles that we should be standing on. It's part of the reason why we 
want to spend time was as we move into Sunday school, who knows when, whenever books get here, they're ordered, they're, they, they'll, it was fixed, got an email from the guy, they're on their way. Talking about what is our worldview in regard to this or that, or, or right? What does the Bible say? What did God himself instruct us in these areas? So that as we move forward in our understanding, we aren't somehow inadvertently misrepresenting or ascribing to something other than God, God-like attributes. We, we, we were talking about, uh, probably going to get this wrong. We were talking about yesterday as we were driving home from my sister's house, uh, we were talking about organic food. And I think in many respects, the conversation uh, resulted in a, a good understanding, right? We were, we were talking about organic food. We were talking about organic dairies and the things that they can't do because that makes them not organic and how dirty and filthy they really are as a result of not being able to do that, right? And ultimately, we're given stewardship as people. God said, listen, have dominion over the land. And so when we do that, we have to also take dominion and responsibility for the results of that dominion. If we're going to take all, you know, hundreds and thousands of cows and put them in one place, we have to do something to steward that situation that we've created. We have to keep things clean. We have to put in the effort and the time to take care of those animals to make sure that there isn't sickness and, and disease and all kinds of bacteria and things growing there. We're going to now distribute a product that is potentially unsafe as a result, right? If you want raw organic milk, probably don't go down to the local dairy and get it. Go somewhere else where, where they do it in a clean manner, right? The idea is that our worldview, if it's consistent with what God has revealed, even something as trivial as where we get our milk will be affected by it. I probably did a terrible job. I mean, there was a lot longer conversation than that, but right, that's the illustration. That's the understanding. We have created a circumstance that we are now responsible for. God has given us intellect and understanding to deal with it, and we either choose to or we choose to ignore it. And if we choose to ignore it, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it a result of my desire to satisfy the lust of my flesh? It costs money to do those other things. It costs money to do that. It costs money to do this. I can sell it for more if I don't do all those things and then I call it this. I'm not saying that's anybody's motive. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying that our worldview comes to bear or should come to bear on those things. Are we thinking in a way that exposes a biblical understanding or at least a desire to understand things biblically? In Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16. Here's the nation of Israel. They've left Egypt. They've been delivered. They're being led by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. God is miraculously part of the Red Sea. All of those things have happened. They've witnessed it. They've seen it. And what do they do? They complain. And this is their MO throughout their wanderings in the wilderness. 
It's ultimately the reason why they weren't allowed into the promised land in the first place. They didn't trust. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When, he, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full, for you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So there's a couple of things that have happened here, right? First off, we're going to blame the guy that God sent. We're going to completely remove God from the picture. God is the one that led them out of Egypt. God is the one that promised Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you. You're going to multiply. Not only that, but very specifically for 400 years, you're going to be in this country and you'll end up in bondage there. But I'm going to deliver you out. That's just the place where I'm going to grow this nation. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And as he leads them out, and is there any adversity, any hardship, any woe is me, whatsoever, it's hot outside. Somebody was telling me, it was Chloe, she told me there's an article, she read an article that climate change is to blame for childhood obesity because it's hot outside. We can't go outside, it's so hot. <laughs> well, you know, that's... Woe is me. I'm going to disassociate God from anything that he has already done. I'm going to blame this guy. Moses, you let us out here to kill us. If only God would have killed us. Back there in Egypt. I mean, we were eating good. I mean, they were killing our babies. Uh, you know, we had to build all kinds of stuff. But they didn't give us the right materials. They whipped us. I mean, you know, we were totally in bondage. We were slaves. But by golly, we had the flesh pots and we got bread. Here's the blessing of God. I left, I delivered you out. And not only did I deliver you out, I'm taking you to the place that I promised you, planned flowing with milk and honey. And they complained. Right? They called what was good, what God had done, evil, and what was evil, good. And this is what we're finding today in least Western culture, but in the church as well, that we're quickly accepting and willing to say this is good, or we should tolerate that. Right? The nation of Israel is saying we should tolerate bondage as a result of the benefit of food. It's just what they said. And the church is willing to say we're going to tolerate sin, we're going to call that acceptable, or we're willing to turn a blind eye to it as a result of not causing an offense as a result of whatever it may be, whatever excuse we want to put there. Our heart is exposed as a church. And I'm speaking of the church in general. I don't think that's a common problem in our fellowship. But I'm praying in many respects that as we study through the book of Hosea, that we get to be those who stand up. And in love and in meekness, Expose those things that are there. Shine the light into the church. Here's the nation of Israel. They needed reminded. They got reminded for 40 years in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 11, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, that's where they numbered the people. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 11, and some other things happened in the book of Numbers as well that are very important. 
Numbers chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. It says, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before your eyes. Listen, God provided them the very bread of heaven as illustrative of the bread of Jesus Christ yet to come, provided everything daily. All you had to do is literally go pick it up and eat it. Everything you need in a single meal. Perfect. And they complain, woe is us. I remember garlic. I remember the fish. Whatever it may be. They complain, they complain, complain. And then God in his love and compassion provides them quail, right? We want some meat with this bread. And so God provides them quail and they have it to eat. He meets every need, yet they're unwilling. And why are they unwilling? Well, we read about that in James chapter four. And if you'll remember the first few verses of James chapter four. He dresses this, and it ultimately results from our sin nature, from our uh, unwillingness to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and him being the creator. James chapter 4, verse 1, from whence come wars and fighting amongst you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. And you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of this world is an enemy of God. This is the nation of Israel in a nutshell. This is where they stand. If only we had those things that we had in Egypt, we would be willing to call evil good and good evil, that which is wrong and bad, good and right, if only we could get some garlic. If only we could get a little piece of fish every now and then. And here, in many respects, that that same idea has pervaded into the church. That we're willing, for the sake of filling seats or uh, big bankrolls or whatever it may be, We're willing to put the word of God aside. We're willing to not stand on biblical principle and truth. And we're willing to, at the very least, turn a blind eye to or even embrace those things which God has clearly called sin. Because society says so. For whatever reason we may put there, anything else other than this is what God has said and this is what we're going to stand is by definition idolatry. And God says to you and I as the church, your nakedness is going to be exposed. Your nakedness is going to be exposed. Now, I don't think that we're standing here necessarily on the precipice where God says, listen, I'm going to remove mercy from you. Judgment has to start in the house of the Lord, and it starts tomorrow. But I think we stand at a point where at least in the American church, we have to be accepting and willing to say, listen, we got to change. We have to draw a line in the sand. You're either for us or against us. To be enemies, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And that is not a popular sentiment in the American church. And I, in my opinion, I see it declining. 
And all the more so as we see the day of Christ draw nearer and nearer. The heart of the church has been exposed. The heart of Israel was exposed. He continues on in verses 6 and 7 of Hosea chapter 2. He says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up the way which, with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she, she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. That's right. So we have this call to repentance. We have this summary of the, the, just the very basic, this is the consequence of what you're now doing. And then we have God initiating this conversation where he's going to uh, hedge her in. Right. When I was up there with Taya, we were cutting down all these manzanita bushes beautiful from a distance but i'd never want to touch another one of them right we had this discussion why are why are we even doing this these cows will never go through here and if they do get into these bushes there's so much deadfall in here they will they'll never get out it's a natural fence so does it make sense to even build the fence there's other reasons that they were building the fence but it's exactly what god is promising here and it does two things. It keeps the church in, keeps the people of God in, so they don't pursue after this idolatry. And it also keeps things out. God says, listen, I will hedge in the way. I will surround them with thorns and make a wall that she can't find her path. She can't get out. This is God's mercy to his people saying, listen, I'm going to draw them back to myself. You see the result of all this. We kick against the goads, right? That's what Paul did. And he was confronted by Jesus Christ himself. He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you, it is hard for you to kick against the goads? And all a goad is is a sharp stick that you poke your oxen with. Right? It's bad enough to get poked with it. It's, bad, it's even worse to kick it. He says, Paul, why would you make it worse for yourself? You know the truth. You're just unwilling to accept it. You're unwilling to embrace what God has said. For you and I as a church, we kick against the goads, the highs and the lows. It says here that she shall follow after her lovers. That term follow after means that she seeks every single place, high and low, left and right, everywhere, no stone unturned. There is a heavy pursuit of all of those things that were satisfying and gratifying the flesh. And God says, I'm going to build a fence to preserve you from it. I'm going to keep you out of it. We're either going to choose to be subject to God's goodness in that sense, or we're going to choose to kick against the goes. It's the faithfulness of God to draw us back to himself. And that's the end result that we read here in verse 7. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Does anybody know what happens in Luke 15 for gold stars that mean nothing nobody's keeping track of? Somebody knows, there's nobody's willing to say, I know. Maybe if I actually kept track of the gold stars, might be a better motivator. Luke chapter 15, this is where we read about the prodigal son. Prodigal son. Who ultimately is due no inheritance. He's the younger son, he's not the eldest son, yet his father gives him an inheritance anyway which is really an example 
of you and I being part of the Gentile world, being brought into the nation of Israel, grafted in. We're receiving inheritance that really isn't due us. Those people who are not my people, I will say to them, you are my people. That's what that illustrates. And what does he do? He goes out and he squanders it. He wastes all the inheritance that he was given. And he finds himself eating slop with the pigs. And while he's there, we pick it up here in verse 17. And when he came to himself, in other words, when he realized where he really was, he was willing to acknowledge this is where my heart stands. It wasn't the physical circumstance that he found himself in. It was the spiritual, the heart circumstance that he found himself in. When he came to his senses, when he realized where his heart was, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Sounds like repentance to me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is his plan. I've realized where I am spiritually. I'm going to go to my father and I will confess my sin. And I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me one of thy hired servants. I'm no more worthy to be called your son, which is the natural estate of every single person in this room who has ever lived. We are not worthy to be called the sons of God. Yet, as many as believed, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, adopted into the family of God. And we can't lose that estate. We can't lose that position for anything that we do or anything that anyone else does. And we see the response of the father here. And he arose, the father arose and came to his father, excuse me. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And you know the rest of the story, right? They take, he gives him the cloak. He puts the ring on his finger. He kills the fatted calf. They celebrate the restoration and the reconciliation them in so that they can't go in pursuit of those things. The only option they will, they'll have is to return to me. And throughout Israel's history, that was exactly what God did. He sent those nations to be a judge so that they might turn back to him. Specifically stated of Nebuchadnezzar, specifically stated of the king of Assyria, you are my instrument of correction so that they might turn back to me so that those prodigals may realize who i am and ultimately in verse 8 as we look here he says for she did not know that i gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. how soon we forget the faithfulness of god here is God, and he's done everything. He says, even in the midst of your unfaithfulness, even though you were adulterous to me, pursuit of idols, and everything, every benefit that I gave you, you offered to these idols, I was the one who was continually giving you corn and wine and oil and multiplying the silver and gold. I was the one blessing you. Only he can provide, whether it's physically and spiritually. This is what God has been doing the entire time. For their entire history, founded upon idolatry, God has remained faithful. 
he's stuck with them. Just as he sticks with his people yet today, I will never leave thee, I will never forsake thee. We have the assurance that even though we may, at the hand of God, out of his love and concern for us, be corrected, be given the only option is to return back to him, he didn't change. He didn't remove himself from us. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We could really, we could read the entire chapter. But we're not going to read the entire chapter because it's too long this morning. Let's begin in verse 2. He says, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Thy raiment, thy clothes wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. Can you imagine if your feet didn't, if they just felt good all the time? I mean, I'm not old, but I'm older, and I know because I got sore feet. Right here it is. God said, listen, I was faithful to the extent that your feet didn't swell. Whenever we had to get up and pull up the tabernacle and roll up all the tents and let's move on, we're going to be good to go. Right? Your clothes didn't wear out. Your shoes didn't wear out. Your feet were fine. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. Because he loves him, because he's concerned about him. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Right? Remember, God says, that I have been faithful, that I have watched over you these 40 years, miraculously so, providing you food and manna, making your feet not swell, your clothes not wear out, all of the above. Don't take it too hard when I have to correct you. Remember that this is a faithfulness and a blessing that God would extend to each one of us. And that as the adulterous woman described there, representing the nation of Israel, says, I'm going to return back to my idols, to my lovers, those that I would commit adultery with, that I would separate myself from the Lord with. He says, I'm still right here. In Nehemiah chapter 9, you'll remember that Nehemiah is in the, the book in which we read about the restoration of the walls of Israel. Ezra, having left that Babylonian exile and built the temple, yet the walls are falling down around Jerusalem. The cities is in shambles. Nehemiah says, I can't even ride my donkey through the streets. It's so bad. And as we get into Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, he says, And they, for, they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of goods and wells that were digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit 
trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Right? Nehemiah is here with all those people that are there in Jerusalem, reminding them, this is the land that we came into. It was flowing with milk and honey. The God said, listen, here are the houses that are already built. You don't have to build your own houses. Here are the wells that are already dug. You get to drink the water from them. You get to harvest the crops that you didn't plant, all of those things. And in fact, if we go back into the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, he says, don't forget me when you reap the fatness of the land. When you eat the food that you didn't grow, when you live in the houses you didn't build, when you drink the water from wells you didn't dig, don't forget who gave them to you. Don't ascribe it to some other portion of creation. Don't ascribe it to some idol because it was me. And here Nehemiah is bringing that to remembrance. Nevertheless, he says, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee and they wrought great provocations. And he goes on to describe, this is why we went to Babylon. This is why we were in Assyria. Because we forgot who was giving us the things that we received. We were forgetful of the Lord. Only he can provide. In Acts chapter 17, we're nearly done here. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, in these verses that we're reading, Paul is here at the Acropolis. He's up there on Mars Hill. And he's going to preach this sermon uh, based upon the idol that he finds there to the unknown God. And part of what we read here, he begins in verse 16. Now, while Paul was in Athens, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. This gives us the understanding that it isn't just the city, but even the Jews have fallen to idolatry. That's why he starts there. That's why he confronts them. He contends with them earnestly because of the idolatry that they're holding. And they're rejecting of it. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, saying, May we know what is this new doctrine whereof thou speakest. Right? right? They hear Paul preaching about Jesus. It's unfamiliar to them. Let's take him up here to the Areopagus. This is where we have all of our idols set up. Preach unto us about this God that we don't know anything about. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And it's an interesting thing to me that as we get into more modern times, if you go back and you read biblical commentary from 100 or 200 years ago, it's drastically different than biblical commentary today. Biblical commentary in the past was blunt and straightforward. This is what God has said, and it doesn't matter what I think about it. This is the truth. This is good and right and uncompromising. We'll stand upon this truth. Biblical commentary today, what's being taught in seminaries, what's being uh, preached from many pulpits, is very wishy-washy. We can't offend. We have to have seeker-sensitive churches. We have to. I watched a video just the other day. It was 
John Piper and Doug Wilson, both of whom I have respect for. Doug Wilson is, he's from Northern Idaho. Uh, I got some books by him, great books. One of the best marriage books I ever read was written by Doug Wilson. And he's very uh, aggressive in his uh, attack on false doctrine and those who would pervert the gospel to be acceptable. Now, I'm not saying that he's 100% right in his approach. Perhaps it's a bit harsh. But on the other side of this conversation, you have John Piper, who, and they, I mean, they, they were talking at each other in this video that I watched. And it's, it's old. It's probably 20 years, 25 years ago. And John Piper is saying, listen, he gives it as a word of caution, but he's very critical of Doug Wilson. He's like, listen, we should just be nice to people. We need to be acceptable or not accepting. He, he's not, don't get me wrong. I don't think he's condoning of sin. But he's saying we have to say it nicely. We have to both have a point, right? We're going to tell the truth in love. We're not, we're not here to stamp somebody down so hard that they're unreceptive. We need to have the heart of compassion that John Piper's talking about, but we also need to have the fortitude of a Doug Wilson actually have the conversation. I think there's somewhere in the middle that we need to be. Um, all that to say that here, there are those who are willing to compromise. We want to hear this new doctrine. And, 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 and today, as we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical principle, it's like a foreign language to much of the church. Come and tell us about this new doctrine. We've never heard it before. Just like the Epicurics and the Stoics, these guys who, they should know. We're reading the same book, I thought. But we're not interpreting it correctly. And if we are interpreting it correctly, we're unwilling to stand on it. Paul goes on and he preaches this message very, very short, effectively. I mean, you look at it compared to Stephen's uh, masterful presentation of the gospel in Acts chapter 7. I'm, there are those who are really, man, they look at Paul's polemic here in Acts chapter seven, 17, and they're like, man, it's a masterful sermon. And I'm like, there is zero fruit from his sermon. Zero. It was ineffective. He talked about this unknown God. He says, listen, you're far too superstitious. I want to talk to you about the unknown God this idol that you have to the unknown God. And he goes on and he talks to him about him, about the creator. He talks to him about all these things. But through all of this, he doesn't mention Jesus Christ. And nobody responds to anything. Yet here is Stephen just a few chapters before. And what does he talk about? He talks about sin. He talks about the standard of righteousness. And he talks about Jesus Christ filling that gap and providing the sacrifice for us. And even these religious elites are cut to the heart. Why? Because he stands upon the truth. He's unwavering in his devotion to the word of God. In Romans chapter one, last reference here, we're going to close. In Romans chapter one, verse 28 says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. Whether they're in the church or out of the church, I don't want to have to deal with that because if that is true, then everything else about it is true. We've talked about this before. We talked about it in great detail as we went through Romans. The light shining into the darkness. My prayer for us as we study through the book of Hosea is that it, for us, is a call to fortitude. That as Hosea is a very blunt and straightforward, yet filled with compassion in the gospel, that our presentation in our life and in our world would be the same. Unwavering, uncompromising, straightforward, but filled with the hope of the gospel. That that thread would extend through our lives and through the words that we speak to those that are around us. Not only outside of the church, but I'm convinced as needful anymore and maybe more needful those within the church. And it's an unfortunate circumstance that we would find ourselves in a place where this would have to be the focus of the message, that the point of outreach would be the church. But there it is. This is what God does throughout with the nation of Israel. It's part of what we need to be doing as his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your name. Father, I praise you for your word, and I praise you for the oftentimes what we may perceive as harsh or critical uh, portions of it. But Lord, I pray that those portions, that we would receive them even as your blessing, because that is what it is, that your spirit would convict, that your spirit would deal with us, that your word would stand before us as we read in the book of James as that law of liberty. And as we look into it, we see our natural self. And so I praise you, Lord, for the, for the impact that your word has in our hearts and minds. And I pray that by your grace, Lord, everyone here would be emboldened to be those proclaimers of truth. That God, by your grace, we would have the fortitude to confront sin and compromise even within the church. And ultimately, Lord, that that would be the mechanism from which we share the gospel, the good news, the hope of Jesus Christ. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. And I pray that as we worship, as we sing praise and adoration to, for who you are and what you've done, the Lord, in those few moments, it would be a complete and full-hearted communion with you. We praise you and we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.